0: Welcome to the Teaching Drama Podcast. Seth, Seth, I'm turning this into a musical. Oh, well, this is very
1: exciting. I've, I've been, uh, that's been my long-term plan for the podcast anyway, so I'm glad we're, uh, we're moving into the next phase.
0: Can you compose all the music? I, I can handle the lyrics. Can you do the music? Yeah, sure. <laughs> what, what, what's the primary instrument you're composing for? Uh, harmonica. <laughs>
1: dang i was hoping for a zither or
0: something like that
1: well we may incorporate some zither especially into the uh the 11 o'clock number <laughs> zither a, a beautiful
0: orchestral score including the zither and harmonica fe- featuring the zither and harmonica uh, we would we I'm, I'm sure we would make broadway history maybe not for the right reasons <laughs> <laughs> it would welcome back be yeah <laughs> welcome back welcome back yeah, thanks. You too. It's uh, It's been a little bit, but I'm
1: very excited to be back.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's summer, so we've got to take our summer break along with the rest of our um, teaching friends out there. Hopefully everyone is having a lovely break and that it's been uh, restful for you and gotten some time to take away from the classroom and from your teaching duties.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's been good. Uh, it's been a, a uh, you know, it's... always feels like uh, it's gonna be really long and then you get into it and it's like, oh my gosh, it's almost over now. Um, But it has been good. And I hope, uh, yeah, I hope you've been able to knock out a couple of projects. I've got a couple of things lined up that I'm excited about. So that's uh, been very fun to kind of switch gears and use a different part of my brain.
0: Cool. We'll we'll talk about what we're working on at the end uh, of today's episode. But uh, let's jump right into the question, the theater history question of the episode. So today we are talking with an extra special guest who is going to be discussing musical theater and teaching musical theater at the uh, collegiate level, but also at the secondary level. So I have decided to pluck pluck something out of Broadway history and throw it at you. So I want to know what musical gave us the song Give My Regards to Broadway. It's It's an early one. Hmm. and if you need a hint i've got one but what musical gave us the song give my regards to broadway well, that's a good one
1: uh yeah let me hear the hint
0: uh the composer for this musical is george m cohan i don't know if that's a very good hint it's well so much.
1: actually i i was thinking that i i was fairly certain that it was george m cohan a, a cohan song um
0: And this one's one of his earliest. So this is, uh, 1904, I believe is Um, when this premiered on Broadway.
1: 1904, uh, 1904,
0: George and Cohan. Um, it's not been like revived I mean I'm it has once it got revived in 1982. Okay. So it's not been a very popular musical through the ages.
1: Okay. Uh yeah I was thinking uh like my knowledge of early musicals is is pretty limited. Um is it called like uh Yankee Doodle or something like that? You're 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 on the right track. Um uh, in
0: fact the Yankee Doodle Boy is one of the Songs in the show, and you kind of have that Yankee Doodle character that is crucial to this this show. So
1: I'll I'll just go ahead and give it to you. It's Little Johnny Jones that is the musical. Little Johnny Jones. Um, Interesting. I think it was. I think it was George M. Cohan. uh, But it was one of the major like early American composers of musical theater. Could only play piano in one key, and so had a device built that would so that he could like play if he had to change the key, he couldn't figure yeah. out to do it. Um, I think it was him. I think he was like uh, a, uh, like a, 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 sort of like weirdly skilled composer, but not that good of a musician. Hmm. Um, That's fascinating. It, it huh. might be somebody else. It might be, it's, I, it definitely wasn't one of the Gershwins, but. So, um, sound, sounds like
0: somebody with a strong theoretical knowledge, like music theory knowledge and understanding kind of transposition and how Various keys work, but then not necessarily the technical knowledge of how to to kind of play it all out on a, on a maybe a piano or other instruments.
1: Yeah, um, it's uh, interesting. You know, like um, when you think about like the, the you know like or if you listen to uh, a couple of years ago, well, maybe closer to fifteen now. Then this is how old I'm getting. But uh, there was a a release uh, record release that was like Sondheim singing his own songs. Um, And he's not a particularly like he I mean, he's obviously a skilled musician, but he doesn't have that impressive of a voice. Mm -hmm, Uh, And mm -hmm. so it's interesting to hear like, you know, to think about like what he must be hearing in his head that he can make this happen, even if he can't do it himself. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Sort of inspiring. Not that I think I'll ever like. Well, our Zither and Harmonica musical will certainly be compared to Sondheim, but... Uh,
0: yeah, that's going to propel us to new heights. That's yeah. going to be something amazing. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, and speaking
0: of new heights, um, we are very excited about today's guest for the episode. Um, she is an, a, a Broadway veteran, and not only a Broadway veteran, but also a veteran of the classroom, too, and teaching acting and teaching musical theater. Our guest is Lisa Brescia. Lisa is an associate professor of acting at Stevens Conservatory for the Performing Arts. On Broadway, Lisa has starred as Heidi Hansen in Dear Evan Hansen, Donna Sheridan in Mamma Mia, Elphaba in Wicked, Cleo in Twyla Tharp's The Times They Are a-Changin', Amneris in Aida, and Marianne Holcomb in The Women in White. Additional New York credits include the role of Helena in All's Well That Ends Well and Claire in Ordinary Days. Among her numerous regional credits, and they are numerous, Lisa played Tatiana Racon in the premiere of Ken Ludwig's A Comedy of Tenors, Hermione in The Winter's Tale, Gertrude in Hamlet, Ivy in August, Osage County, and many more. Lisa is married to Broadway composer-lyricist Craig Carnelia and lives in Columbia, Missouri. And welcome, Lisa Brescia, to the podcast. Thanks for being with us today.
2: It's my pleasure, Kyle. Thank you so much for asking me, both of you, Seth. Thank you.
0: It's lovely to have you. So let's just jump right in. Um, Big question we typically start with with all of our guests is how did you get into theater? What what about this profession, about this art, this life really attracted you to it?
2: Uh, Well, I was a a slow burn. I, I started in, you know, late middle school, eighth grade and high school. I think mostly because I was looking for connection. It wasn't because I thought I was talented or I was drawn to being looked at or applauded for. I was really just really shy, um, almost cripplingly shy um, on stage, Um, but I was drawn to the community of people and I did not have a real sense of connection in my home life. So I saw my sister get involved with theater. She's older than me. I was jealous (laughs) and I simply auditioned for the for the shows, and because I sang fairly well um, in comparative in comparison to other people, I um, I was cast, and then I actually had to do it, and that was terrifying, and uh, wasn't all that successful. But I did get started, really looking for connection with peers because I had a really hard time connecting with with other people, and uh, that really that was appealing to me, and kind of saved me, as we often hear artists say that that was. A really uh, important part of their development as a human being and that certainly was true for me with my sense of belonging and so that's how I got into it I never thought I would make a living at it I never thought I was actually any good at it until later um, much later <laughs> uh, when I was training I learned I was good at it and when I was in my late 20s I started to believe that I could make a nickel at it so it, I was I was kind of no, definitely not one of those people who comes out of the womb like, where's my light? You know, where's the stage? I, I was, I, <laughs> I was very shy, but something in me, I guess there's a fire in my belly uh, as much as uh, as it was kind of a faint one at the beginning. It definitely grew and grew and grew. And eventually I felt like, you know what? I think I may have a place in this business. Who knows? Was there a, turn- a shot.
0: Was there a turning point or a person or something that happened that made you really think, this is for me and this is something I could build a life around?
2: Well, in conservatory training, the feedback I got was all very positive, even, you know, and encouraging. They were very gentle, patient with me. Not everyone. You know, some teachers are more fiery than others. Like, what are you doing? Um, (laughs) In general, I had a, a, a very kind experience in conservatory and i ended up winning awards on graduation day for speech for acting all these you know accolades and and then proceeded to hide out and really not do it professionally until i was in my late 20s and i got out of conservatory when i was 21 years old so it was maybe 29 before i really felt like i could be a professional and In that sense, it it was um, my voice teacher that I found and an acting through song teacher because when I went to conservatory, it was for straight plays. It was not for musical theater. So I didn't get uh, real musical theater training until I was much older, 29 years old is when I started. You
0: take private voice lessons or if you don't mind me just inquiring a little bit more about that, did you take a workshop or where did you get that uh, training from?
2: Vocal training was private lessons. Um, I found a teacher in my early 20s and and, and that was not the right teacher for me. Um, it, very classically based. And I sort of m- learned how to sing by mimicking the music I grew up with and loved, like um, classic rock and um, folk. And, you know, I really love Joni Mitchell and Joan Baez and sort of a throaty sound. Um, And I should mention that I did get a job as a singer, surprisingly, when I was 23. I was hired by John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas to sing with them as they toured the world. So from 23 to 28, I would go out, sing with the band as a mama. We would jokingly say the Mamas and the Grandpapas. Um, That's wonderful. (laughs) Yes, and did so that uh, I'd go out for a weekend, sing at a state fair, go home, work at my office job that I had for over 11 years, you know, and so I had this wonderful juxtaposition of of being, you know, singing, singing in front of 1000s and 1000s of people up to 100,000 um, in stadiums or on the back of a flatbed truck at a, at a county fair, you know, it, it really ran the gamut with these guys. And then going back and making coffee and copies for my boss in the office, you know, so it was, it was very humbling and it was probably pretty grounding. I never really had a sense of an overinflated ego to begin with, so I was never in danger of, of becoming arrogant. Um, but uh, that that was my first professional foray, but it wasn't telling stories and I wanted to be an actor, I wanted to tell stories. And so that I became really ready for, I think emotionally and professionally, and skill set wise, even though I had really great training, I was just too scared. And so by the time I hit those um, late 20s, uh, I found the right teachers for me to make me brave and uh, say, yeah, there may be a place for me here.
0: So you, you brought up one thing I feel like we might wanna make sure that we, we kind of s- establish a baseline for. You talked about your, your vocal training and you, you mentioned that your, your previous voice teacher, the one that didn't quite work out, Was more classically focused so what could you explain to the audience what does that mean to be classically focused and i'm sure folks out there have heard terms like belt voice and so those other things uh so could you explain the difference between something like musical theater and and what you did with the mamas and the papas if there is any difference and other types of vocal performance as well
2: sure well there are some some teachers, and I, and I think that classical training is an amazing way to train the voice um, for musical theater, for pop, for rock. I have all respect for classical training. My particular voice and my instrument. When I was in my early twenties, uh, I did not take to that technique with this particular teacher. So, if I'd had another teacher who had that sort of uh, pedagogical. Technique process with their their students that that would have been right for my voice or maybe I just wasn't ready, or, I don't know, but it 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 certainly didn't work for me. But um, there are different modes of singing. So there's um, the more operatic sound would um, obviously be considered legit or classical, and that is generally with a very high um, soft palate in the back. There are lots of space, and um, in the singing technique that I've been a part of it's called sob and then so it's oh very open and back a very high soft palate and then there's also speech so shifting the focus from way in the back and that high soft palate to more focus perhaps top of the head or on that hard palate right behind the two front teeth and therefore singing in that mode is more like speech you're just speaking on pitch and then there's twang so then you put it in that nasal area and you got twang and so different genres of music you can play with you know i can sing something from light in the piazza obviously i'm going to have a more classical approach than a bonnie Raitt tune which is like a rock twang or a wicked alphabet is definitely more speech um, rather than too nasal or or too classical. And so exploring these modes, I was really stuck in twang uh, when I st- first started seriously studying. And then I learned through her, um, Andrea Green, she's a New York based teacher. She's an associate teacher of Joan Later, who is a very, very, very well known New York City voice teacher. And Andrea um, has, numerous clients all over Broadway and and she helped me learn how to sing healthfully. We still study together. And on zoom now, thankfully, we have zoom and she she took me from having maybe, you know, an octave and a half range, which was very specific to something just much more versatile and obviously a more expanded range. Um, And tons of like much more stamina. And if I if I hadn't found her, there's no way I could have sung alphabet one time, let alone more than once a week. So <laughs> so I credit her. But that's a, a little glimpse into some vocal training. I am not an expert and I am not a voice teacher for singing. So I don't claim to know much except as a, a student myself.
1: So one thing that I think our Uh, listeners are really going to be interested in you've been in a number of plays on Broadway and um you know some really uh some amazing an amazing uh set of plays Dear Evan Hansen uh Jesus Christ Superstar um Aida and I'm curious about how the experience of performing on Broadway is different you know I think that's kind of the the brass ring that a lot of people aim for when they enter the profession and I'm curious about what that experience was like for you how um maybe it's different from other performances you've done or maybe in some ways the same, um, but what is that experience like?
2: You know, it's thrilling because I think of what it represents um, is, you know, very, it's sort of magical for me uh, because I, I did come from a place of very, you know, negative regions of, of zero in terms of my confidence levels. So for me to get to Broadway, I think that is very symbolic of, Wow, miracles happen, and I'm incredibly blessed. So every show and that experience is going to be different um, in terms of, well, I mean, Broadway pays more, (laughs) to be fair, and the budgets are higher, so the costumes are outrageously expensive often, or sometimes they're off the rack, but, you know, I I recently popped in the tour of Dear Evan Hansen due to some uh, covid cast shortages, Um, and so I I went out and did four performances on the tour in East Lansing, and, you know, they didn't have my Broadway costumes, they had some of them, but I needed jeans, and my character would not have $500 jeans, but I did have $500 jeans waiting for me, and uh, that is just not going to happen, you know, at at a theater in in Schenectady, necessarily. Mm I can say I've
0: never worn $500 (laughs) jeans. I'm sorry. I just had to jump in and say that. That's amazing.
2: I've worn them for one scene four times. So let's, let's just be honest. (laughs) Um, But you know, the, the dresses that I wore in AIDA were thousands and thousands of dollars. And of course in Wicked as well, that act two dress, I have no idea. I don't want to know how much that cost. I can tell you it weighed over 50 pounds. So it was, um, it's astonishing creation and the, and those, costumes are just incredible. And the, and the sets and the designs, obviously, they're paying top dollar a lot of the time for these multi million dollar productions. And so just that's that is really not that important to me as much as the story. Um, but it is sort of amazing to note the difference, obviously. Um, and then I think it becomes a, you know, depending on the length of the run, uh, it, it becomes a, an opportunity. Some people don't thrive in long runs because they find it tedious or, or monotonous. For me, I thrive in a long run. I, I think I never stop looking to to keep uh, it, discovering, 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 surprising uh, myself and, and and not not purposefully messing around with with a performance but just staying in the opportunity to practice staying moment to moment to moment and and really listening and responding truthfully and reinvesting and rediscovering is that to me in the long run is is an opportunity to just get better and better and better and i don't mean broader and broader and broader which can sometimes happen but better and better and better, better deeper richer more connected more alive and in a regional production, these are generally very limited runs. So you don't have that much time. Um, that's one difference. Of course, you know, a couple of the Broadway shows that I did had very short runs. So I didn't have the chance to grow um, as hoped, but that's just the chance people take when they produce a Broadway show. It doesn't always run. Well,
0: you, you did direct recently a show that you were in the original cast for, can you tell me about was it was it fun Was it kind of like doing a long run to come back to the show and re-explore a little bit more about the characters and what was going on, all that kind of stuff?
2: Sure. So, um, what Kyle's referring to is the show Ordinary Days by Adam Guan, which we did off Broadway in two thousand nine in New York City at Roundabouts, at um, Underground, uh, and it was it was a thrilling experience, original work the whole cast, I mean, it was Hunter Foster, Kate Weatherhead, Jared Gertner, and myself. It was very intimate, top-notch material, and a dream team, Mark Bruni directed, who directed Beautiful on Broadway. And um, then, you know, all these years later, in the fall of 21, directed it at Missouri State with two casts, and, you know, in a sense, it wasn't like a, a long run, but it certainly was like another opportunity to explore the piece from a less narcissistic view because, of course, as an actor, it's just I'm concerned with Claire's story. I'm concerned with the overall story, but my job is to understand Claire's arc and what she's doing in each song, which is seen the whole thing is sung through. Um, and. To be able to step outside of it and to support these young artists who I thought were magnificent, um, embody not just the Claires, but the, the actors playing all the roles and the whole piece, the arc of the whole piece, um, working with the designers, Michelle Harvey at Missouri State, um, and Mike Foster, the lighting designer, was just incredible. and. Uh, the, to, to, I knew every single word by the time we got to opening and I would just sit out there and I couldn't even help myself. I was glad I was in the dark because my, my lips were moving along with the actors and I just felt like I was living through it with them. But watching them surprise me and show me, reveal things to me about the material that I hadn't thought of uh, and to see how different they all were. Um, that was, you know, it didn't, it didn't equate to, to feeling like a long run, but it certainly felt like a rebirthing of a show that I absolutely adored being a part of and, uh, and sort of passing the baton to some very worthy young artists.
0: I can confirm it was an amazing show and the cast was brilliant. So you did an incredible job, Thank you. but so to kind of, uh, change gears just a little bit here. I, I also want to refer back to something you were talking about earlier about your confidence and how that was something that you really found later in life. And, you know, knowing that our audience out there, there's a lot of high school and middle school theater teachers, drama teachers out there, and they're dealing with a lot of young students who who may have a connection with theater, may find what similar to what you found in it, this sense of community, a joy of storytelling, but the confidence isn't there yet. Is that is there a way to teach that, I guess? That's the question. Is there a way to teach confidence or is it just something that in your training in time you you come to find?
2: I think you said the magic word and that's time. Of course teachers they all know the listeners know you know we have a great power to be kind and encouraging and affirming and cajoling and, and cheerleading and all of the things and my my hat goes off to middle school and high school theater teachers the the it's insurmountable task I feel like and so I've huge respect for what um, these people accomplish with those kids and and the mission and the work that they've um, committed to doing um, their life's work um, I think for me, I, I see in the students, and I see in it for my, and I can speak for myself as an artist, because I still feel like there's a kid inside of me, and I really identify with the kid who, who really just could not be confident until she got confident, and and I wasn't ready to uh, to, um, I mean I was pretty confident in my studies in conservatory when I was young. I was in zero confidence in high school. Forget it. But in conservatory, I learned that I learned technique, and that and that really allowed me to develop some confidence. I just wasn't ready to put myself out there in the in the world, um, and compete in that way. I, I just was too scared. So I think I really sort of had to grow into myself, grow up a little bit, mature, and and then at 29, I was. I was ready. I was mature enough, and so when students come to me, you know, scared that they didn't get cast enough in college, or they didn't get cast in the community theater downtown, or whatever the concerns are, I'm like, "This, you know, it's not over for you. You're 22. You're or 23, and and." and Students often, you know, alums will call and nothing's happening. You know, it's been it's been six months in New York and nothing's happening. And I'm like, yeah, you're that's right. That's exactly appropriate. <laughs> Nothing is necessarily going to happen. And um, and and so I, I do think t- confidence takes time and t- development and self care. So one thing that um, when I was thinking about what might be useful t- for young listeners is is um, to remember that if there's something in your way as you become a young professional, if there's something in your way in terms of addiction or mental health struggles, or just whatever feels like lives between your ears, in your mind, which causes you to get in your own way, there is help for that. And without dealing with one's own stuff that gets in the way, it just gets, a, it's a tougher road to hoe and there's no reason for it other than readiness because there are resources out there um, that are free or low cost or whatever it is that may be standing in the way of developing that confidence. Um, it is something to be dealt with. So if it's, you know, substance abuse or food addiction or, or just depression or anxiety, um, find helpful resources and deal with it because that will hold an actor back before any lack of training will. Um, you can have all the skills in the world and all the talent in the world, but if, if it's hard to live in your own skin on a day-to-day basis, how is, how is it going to be in trying to make your way in the world, you know? So I just encourage people to get the, the care that they need, to take good care of themselves mentally and emotionally and spiritually if
1: that's something that interests them. Uh, building on that, so you know we're in the summertime now, which means that um, a lot of people, a lot of young people are getting ready to start college in the fall or to return to college. Um, what advice would you have for a student who wants to pursue an education in acting or musical theater? What are some things that you think they need to know when they um, begin their training process?
2: Right, it's a great question. Um, I, I feel like it's it's an individualized thing because a lot of people already know what I'm about to say. So some of you already know this. Um, but to to compare is to despair. So do your best to not to avoid comparison. <laughs> um, you are on your own path. Everyone has what uh, is unique and special about them, and uh, you may not get cast at first. You may not get cast. For a little while, it's it's so. Uh, you know, I like to think about you know if I'm a BMW and I'm sitting in my driveway, I am the BMW. I'm sitting in the driveway. If I'm out on the roads, I'm a BMW, still. But if I'm still if I'm parked in the driveway, I'm still a BMW. So if I'm not cast in something, I'm still an artist, and so that is a very difficult thing to sort of live and believe as a young person. Believe me, it's hard to believe as a 52-year-old person um, when not cast. Um, But it's important to avoid comparison as best you can and um, to be extremely generous with yourself and other people. And what I have found to be the antidote for compare and despair or um, the negative, harsh inner critic um, is to just get to work and to absorb the training and and actually do the thing that you're being trained to do and trust the training and dive in head first, then all of a sudden you're gonna to start to have breakthroughs, you're gonna have, you're gonna to start to connect the dots, you're gonna, light bulbs are gonna go off and your work is going to be, you know, more authentic, rich and and, and you're starting to develop a technique that you can use, not just in academic theater, but on film or television or 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 in regional theater. And then, and then eventually whatever your pursuits are, you're developing a technique. So I like to focus on the work and not the drama, keep the drama on the stage. This is all very easy to say, when decades of like ma- the maturation process. <laughs> um, when I was, you know, I was 17, i in the internal drama the compare and despair was out of control so of course it's easy for me to say now um but i i would say that, that what's worked for me is when i get caught up with the harsh inner critic or the comparing myself to other people is just do the work and trust that i am enough and so uh you know a lot of the issues that that young people have when going through training is just not feeling like they're good enough um and I'm not trusting the process. You are not supposed to be a master at this already. The acronym for shame is should have already mastered everything. So, if you if you think you should have already mastered everything, you are you are it's a recipe to feel bad about yourself. It is about training, it's about learning and growing. And so, it's okay to be, be to be a beginner and grow from there.
0: Oh man, that is well uh, By the way, I'm going to steal that. I hope you're okay with that.
2: It's yours to
0: steal. I stole it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is speaking of kind of the way that we approach uh, helping students through the process and trusting that and trusting themselves, trusting that they're enough. Is there anything in your your years as being a professor and academic, if anything, has, how has it changed? Is, is there something that you might go back and tell yourself when you first started teaching to, you know, to look out for, to think or to do differently?
2: Oh my goodness. Yes. I would say chill the hell out. Like chill out. I was so, I was so, I don't know, uptight and just like wound so tight. I was so determined to have every single class be like come to Jesus moment, you know, like as if, you know, every class needed to be just illuminating and revel, you know, just reflecting revelations for every student. That is ridiculous. That is ego-driven, self-seeking, and really, again, the whole idea of I am enough. Just share what I know and encourage the students. And also not take anything personally. So if a student decides not to come to class, that's their decision. That has nothing to do with me. Um, If they're late, it doesn't have anything to do with me and if they're side chatting, it has nothing to do with me. And when I first began, I was like a a little drill sergeant, you know, I was a little old school. Why are you talking? You know, (laughs) we're working here. And, and I still feel like it is important for students to be engaged and focused and leaning in and absorbing. But I don't get so bent out of shape if they're just not up to it that day, or if they're not that into it if they're not that into it then you know they'll get out of it less than they would if they were into it but that's really not my business it is as their teacher to offer to make the offering and to encourage and to talk to them frankly about it if it becomes a you know an issue with a level of engagement that is is not conducive to their growth. But it's, it's, I just don't take things as personally anymore. And I think that has to do with, again, feeling like I have to prove that I'm a good teacher. And, and, you know what, I'm not there to prove anything to anybody. This isn't about me. This is about the students. Um, and so getting out of ego and getting into service has, has been, what I would say is chill out, just make the offering. And, and, you know, the the fruits of the labor will take care of themselves. Just do the labor and let the fruits be the fruits. So
1: shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, one of the most nerve-wracking parts of being an actor is the fact that you have to audition regularly for things. Um, So as a director, what kinds of things do you look for when you watch auditions? I find that this is always a really helpful thing for people to hear as many perspectives on as possible. So I'm curious what kinds of things you like to see an actor bring to the table in an audition.
2: Great. This is a super question, Seth. Thank you. So I think every director or person who behind who's behind the table is going to want something different. <laughs> some some directors really want to see actors come in and make super strong choices, where you know they might be a little balls to the wall and you know crazy, um, or just super strong choices, and that they exact, know what they want. And that that I think I look for is to have an understanding of the text and have an understanding of the scene or if they're doing a monologue, or if they're singing a song of their own, that they have a very clear idea about what's going on for the character, what's motivating the character to say these words now, or just if um, if the student is singing a song out of context, what is driving you to sing these words now? Um, I think authenticity is really important to me. I'd rather see someone who is really more themselves and bringing them their full selves to the, to the room rather than, um, as something performative or or with artifice, um, and especially in choosing material, unless you're coming in to audition for a British farce, just you know choose material which you know won't be you won't be like a seventeen year old from South Dakota, you know, with a big broad British accent, and, um, and I would just something a little closer to age appropriate and contemporary. Unless of course you're you're auditioning with a classical piece. But even a classical piece, I think you can bring who you are to it rather than this idea of, you know, uh, King Lear or or Hamlet or whoever you've chosen to do a, a piece uh, whatever you've chosen to do a piece from. And it's just finding truth, honesty, groundedness as best you can. And, and understanding, like uh, if you're auditioning for college programs, I highly recommend that you check out Dr. Kurt Heinlein's uh, guide for auditioning for college programs, performance programs, which will be coming out in August. Dr. Kurt Heinlein is um, head of acting at um, Missouri State University's Department of Theater and Dance, and he's an, an outstanding educator, and he has written a guidebook uh, on this very subject in terms of auditioning for college programs. Now, auditioning for certain shows, um, what I love about self-tapes is that I can do it till I feel good about it. And not everybody likes that. I really like it. Um, and then in-person auditions, um, again, I think it has to do with preparation. Um, I, I like to see that people are prepared. They. Of course, the, the, the baseline is knowing the material. And then finding uh, true want and true action in the scene and, and, and honesty. And, and I guess good acting is what I'm looking for, is good acting. Um, and then, of course, the essence of who that person is. So I can see the essence of this actor is exactly right or almost right. And I think we can make it work the essence of this actor is not right at all for this part they're gloriously talented and i cannot cast them in this part so essence has a lot to do with it and that's important for young artists to recognize too it's like you can hit the ball out of the park and you could still not get the part because you're not right for it in terms of the director's vision of the essence of that person
0: you mentioned auditioning for uh, collegiate programs, the entrance into musical theater or acting programs. And, and Dr. Heinlein's guidebook will be so helpful for so many people out there. And as soon as it's available, we will put it in the notes for this episode so people can access it there. But I'd also like to ask, are there other things that, that we should be doing to help make, um, particularly BFAs, a BFA in musical theater, a BFA in acting, more accessible for people who don't have access to some of the training, some of the skills building, things like dance, voice lessons, acting lessons, or even just high school or middle school theater programs that are robust enough that they can build some skill sets to display in an audition. Are, are, are there ways that as, as professors and academics in this at this level that we should be helping our, our teachers and our students at the lower levels find it accessible for them to get into particularly top-notch programs.
2: Well, I wish I had more to offer here. Um, Kurt, you know, Dr. Heinlein's guidebook, I highly recommend. I also think that the internet is a wonderful place. Um, (laughs) And um, for instance, I've recently discovered the singing straw, the singing straw. Here I am promoting this thing. I don't know this person who created it, but a friend of mine on Broadway said, Have you, the singing straw is changing my life. And so I went on and I, and I, it certainly cost me something to buy one of these things. It's just a little straw. And, um, and then she has dozens and dozens of singing workouts and warm ups on YouTube. And so just doing that allowed me to increase my stamina, increase my range, and sing healthfully and get back in shape after a year of not really singing very much where teaching took over and I wasn't singing and my voice was a little rusty. So I, I you know, so, so resources like that, or, you know, I can go on and, and watch a, a movement class for the, from, and a voice class at the National Theater. So I wish I had more, uh, more to offer um, teachers who, you know, where you know, they're t- really trying to help these students without access, but in terms of really good thorough guidance I, I recommend dr heinlein's guidebook and also perhaps spending a couple of hours researching online um what what they can find um, just in terms of oh here's a here's a LeBan technique video. Um, I learned how to teach like laughter yoga um, on just by watching videos of it and buying a book um, you know which is just great fun I don't have to be an expert we just want to be able to make offerings to these students and there's also um, some scholarship programs I know available for things like the college audition program um, and uh, if there are students in need that qualify, they can they can apply for those scholarships. So there may be out there that that I don't know. I wish I had more to offer you on that, Kyle. Sorry.
0: No, that's great. That that's that's a lot of great information. Particularly the singing straw, that <laughs> that I'm great. definitely going to be looking up after we get done with this interview.
2: It's really helped me a lot. It's changed, and I I recommend it all the time to my friends who are you know just looking to, for ways to. To shake up their vocal technique training and workouts. Um,
1: so, thinking along these same lines of accessibility and uh, the things that you know that we can do, and as someone who um, has uh, you know a robust presence in both the professional and the academic world, I'm really interested in your perspective on um, some of the things that maybe the profession can do to increase um, accessibility for students. You know, a lot of people earn theater degrees and they go on and theater may be a part of their life. Um, you know, we create lifelong theater goers, lifelong patrons of the arts. Um, uh, they may, you know, make theater um, as, uh, as a semi-professional activity, but a lot of people, you know, get a theater degree and they don't, that the bulk of their income doesn't come from theater. Um, And I'm curious if there are things that you see that uh, either academic training programs or the profession could do, you know, to help retain some of this talent. You know, there are a lot of fantastically talented people who, um, you know, and sometimes it's by choice and sometimes it's just the nature of the business um, who kind of, uh, you know, don't don't necessarily find a a long term professional home. Um, And I'm just curious if there's anything, you know, any place you see. Um, an opportunity to to um, help change the culture that you know that that getting a theater degree um, may not uh, lead to a, a lifelong career in the theater
2: right well I, I i think that a lot of people who decide to move on um, probably are making the right decision for themselves in it's as, as sad as it is i don't think that we're ever gonna be at a danger of a lack of talent. I think there are a lot of people that are flooding the cities every year from these programs that, that really are hungry for it. And, and I also really honor the question. And I think that some things that the business is doing to help with inclusivity or accessibility, they are trying to address the um, whole question of um, authenticity and casting And they're looking at policies and procedures like doing 10 out of 12s um, in terms of tech rehearsals and having them be, you know, just more humane working conditions. And I think the unions and the League of American Theaters and all of that, and the Broadway League, they're all going to be hashing it out for years and years and years. Um, I think what we can do as educators in the college programs is to really set students up for their life post-graduation with a lot of skills. They have access in a way to auditions that were not available when I got out of conservatory. There was no internet. I'm, I'm really old. <laughs> um, so now we have Actors Access. Everybody should know about Actors Access. And they can have a free account and see what is auditioning where. There's Playbill.com and there's Backstage.com. There's There's accessibility just right there at their fingertips to see what's happening where. Um, Oh, they're doing Cinderella at this theater and I'm great for the stepsister. I'm going to self-tape. Most students and young actors have cell phones with cameras where they can, they know how to make TikTok videos. They know how to make self-tape videos. And just, you know, there's YouTube videos that have tutorials with how to do self-tapes. So they can, and then there's karaoke on iTunes or other platforms where they can record themselves. They're so, it's just so much easier. You don't have to pay a music uh, pianist, um, you know, $80 an hour to record some tracks for you to use. Um, So, really learning these business techniques is helpful um, and passing that on to the students. And then there are resources for how to. How to create a sideline career or or develop those soft skills that come with performance degrees that are invaluable. How to connect with people, how to be in the moment, how to really listen authentically, how to communicate clearly. These are soft skills that people who, who graduate with theater degrees have that are are very, very, very valuable. I mean, I know the alums from Missouri State are heading to the coasts and they're immediately, like they're immediately hired for any kind of job that they they might be qualified for, whether it's uh, in service or whether it's as a customer service rep or whether they're a spray tan technician, whatever it is they're doing, they will get hired because they have these skills. Um, So learning, There's a couple of of, there's a bunch of resources out there, I'm sure, on on how to develop a sideline career. um, When we were in Los Angeles in March and we met with an alumni panel, one of the panelists said, "If you have a skill in Los Angeles, you can find a way to monetize it." And so it you know making these connections, doing one's research, and developing some kind of of supplemental skills, because let's be honest. People who are making their life in the theater in these smaller cities, they can be working all the time, but they're probably you'd having a survival job as well. Supplemental income and the days of the I'm in a theater company and that's all I do. And I'm going to be there for life. That's that's all over, if not you know, almost over, if not over. And maybe there will be a resurgence of that post pandemic i don't know if so i would hope for that let's all join theater companies and make art for the rest of our lives right and and be able to have families and support ourselves but if not there are business skills that we can that we can encourage our students to cultivate within themselves this entrepreneurial mindset and this i can do hard things mindset that it's okay to struggle and there is a way through it and if you love it and you're passionate about it and it's hard, you're still gonna wanna do it. And you can just be resilient and figure it out and stay in it. If people lose the love for it because it's just too hard or financially insecure or unstable, then moving on to serve the world in another way, I don't argue with that. I, I say, you know, God bless you, go live your life. It's hard and I, I respect that decision.
0: Really lovely, a really lovely sentiment. Um, so for, but for our final question, I, I'd like to ask about new work in particular. You've, you've been a part of a lot of new musicals and a lot of new plays. And, and I'm, and I'd like to speak specifically to musical theater, because I think that's where there's a little bit of a dragging of the feet in our, in our cultural and social moment right now. Um, it's hard to find, or I I'm assuming it's hard to find new musicals. Um, particularly, musicals like I'm thinking of A Strange Loop that just won the Tony Award. It's just a beautiful, beautiful musical about a queer black man and his love of theater and 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 writing and all of that. And and what a beautiful piece and what a beautiful work for for younger musical theater actors to be a part of if they get the chance to do something like that. So, my question is, should particularly college theater programs, be looking to produce newer musicals rather than returning to the quote unquote canon of musical theater and pulling something that, that's fine and good and, and will challenge students in the right ways and help them build skill sets. But should we should we kind of maybe think of that more as a plan B and the plan A, pick and look for something that's new, that's maybe more recent, particularly that involves a, a greater diversity of, of options and that sort of thing?
2: I think my answer is yes and yes. So it, it's, it's a bit like, you know, what are we training the students for? What, is, what, is, what are we preparing them for? Um, if we're preparing them for the profession, if we want uh, these, these students to graduate with the ability to approach a new work, then we should be doing new works, and you know, however we can supporting young young writers, uh, reaching out to young composer lyricists or, or or teams of composers and lyricists. What have you got? What's going on there? What a new musical theater? I think there's a website that has more re, younger writers with new stuff out there. There's young there's material there. Um, then uh, and then students are going to get out and they're going to be auditioning for, you know, South Pacific. Yeah. They're going to be auditioning for the Rogers and Hammerstein and, and, um, and hopefully Sondheim. Let's hope he gets, continues to be produced a lot. Cause you
0: know. I don't think he's, I don't think Sondheim's going anywhere. At least I hope not.
2: <laughs> I don't think so either. So the students need to be prepared for the profession. And I, I agree that, you know, it is, it's very important for them to have the experience of of help finding finding new material for themselves the uh the programs can find and produce new works or recently produced works new works and and the students have to have that experience um and then they also if they really want to be a working actor that has a plethora of options available to them, they need to be well versed in the older pieces as well. So, uh, you know, one of my um, limitations is that I am not a musical theater historian. I, I was trained for straight straight plays. And I, I, if someone asked me to teach musical theater history, I, I I'd start to cry. I, I have no. But I, I also um, will be teaching um, some rep in the f- starting in the fall in my new position and I and I want to make sure so I'm studying up this summer and and I need to be well versed in all the new stuff as well as as the older stuff because the students need to they need to be well versed in it all but I agree with you that you know in addition to the trusty favorites of of olden days you know which are wonderful shows and they they were Uh, Revolutionary and and they're important and um, and they are produced. In addition to those, it's important that the students have the opportunities to work on very, very contemporary material that um, sort of continues to um, push us towards more diversity of voices and um, equity and inclusivity and and, um, just a more modern approach to theater, which is long overdue.
0: That's lovely. I think that's a fantastic place to end the interview for today. Lisa, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us.
2: You bet. It's been my pleasure. Great to talk with both of you. Thank
0: you. And many thanks to Lisa Brescia for being with us on this episode and talking about musical theater, education, music, musical theater, more broadly and teaching acting. kind of fun to talk to a Broadway star, huh?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Broadway stars. They're just like us. Um, (laughs) But uh, it was a really, uh, really useful uh, perspective to hear. And I think that's going to be give our audience a lot to think about. And incidentally, circling back to Sondheim, uh, Lisa's husband was one of Sondheim's favorite working composers. Uh, He mentions it in his book of lyrics.
0: We should have like a six degrees of Sondheim now, now that he's passed. Yeah, I I think that like, and you and I now can we're like, what, one, two degrees away from Sondheim now at this point. Look at us. The the zither and harmonica musical though that's gonna that's really gonna put us in the same same uh, camp as as the great Stephen Sondheim. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Not gonna make me have to find some zither harmonica stuff just for the next time we record an episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's come to the, the the time of the episode where I ask you, Seth, what have you been working on?
1: Uh, so I have been um, working. Uh, um, my company here, Stage Left Theater, is doing um, is selecting um, re- uh, candidates uh, for our year-long playwriting residency. So I've been uh, leading the literary team to work through those applications, and we're close to um, having some finalists. So that's very exciting. And uh, next, uh, when we open the um, the applications again next year, I'll certainly be sure to mention that to the listeners. Um, so that's been really exciting. We're also in pre-production on um, a couple on our fall show. So I've been uh, doing a little bit of work for that, and I'm preparing. Uh, I'm going to be um, I haven't quite finalized everything yet, but I'm going to be teaching a couple of new classes in the fall. So I've been preparing some new syllabi and and looking at what other people have done to try to figure out um, how to teach some uh, material that uh, I've never taught before. That I'm really excited about. So it's been. Uh, an exciting summer to kind of get to think about some different, uh, some different stuff. Um, yeah. What about you? What have you got going on?
0: Well, unlike you, I'm actually teaching for the first time, I think in my career, an entire slate of classes in the fall that I have taught in the past. So oh, wow. I, nothing, nothing new for me, but you know, that doesn't mean that I haven't revisited some things and changed a few things out from what I've done in the past to make him, make them stronger classes. But, but it's fun to finally be able to be be like, oh, I don't have to build this class before we begin and the the putting together content and everything throughout the course so it's nice to to have that as a bit of a relief but uh as far as the summer goes i've been teaching some classes been pretty busy overall working and editing on some materials but i've been really excited to be on stage again for the first time in four years and i know oh, that doesn't wow. sound like a yeah i know that doesn't sound like maybe the longest time in the world but It felt like a good long time, especially with COVID in between. Um, But I was in, uh, so we operate a professional theater company here during the summer, and it's called Tent Theater. Um, It used to be performed in an actual tent. It no longer is, but um, (laughs) we have nicer facilities. It's a little bit better, uh, more comfortable for everyone. And we did Moon Over Buffalo by Ken Ludwig. I played the lead male role of George Hay, and it was a blast. I got to stretch some actorly muscles I have not stretched in a long time. I had to do stage combat. I had to fall into a pit. Uh, I I wore like like Cyrano de Bergerac classical costume and had to like change into more relaxed clothes on stage. It was all kinds of stuff I've either done or not done in my past and really had to bring it all together. So all in all, it made for a really good experience. It was a lot of fun to do. Uh, Just kind of reinvigorated, refreshed a lot of my interest in being on stage that I haven't really got to tackle or or wrestle with in a long time
1: yeah it's always fun when you've had kind of a long hiatus to do something different especially like when you jump back in you know after you've directed a couple of shows or worked as a dramaturg or uh what have you you know getting back on stage really I think is a really valuable thing to remember what the actor goes through and and how uh you know, exciting, but challenging and nerve wracking. It can be, um, and Moon Over Buffalo, you know, is one of the classics of the, the American comic repertoire. I actually worked with Ken on a new play like a decade ago now. It was an adaptation of um, Midsummer Night's Dream set on the Jersey Shore. Ah, um, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, which I don't know how often that's been revived, but Ken is a super nice guy and a very, very, um, very talented uh, comic writer um, and actually a lawyer by trade so i didn't know that that's fascinating yeah. okay yeah yeah He was a lawyer first and then he got into playwriting which uh is kind of an interesting path and i think that you know uh explains some of his facility with language maybe
0: yes i i yes i would agree i i can see that now it, it actually makes a lot of sense to me like not only having done this show but also uh read and, and been close to a lot of his other works as well that this that that reads that tracks for his his dramatic style that's really cool Well, I guess it's time to say goodbye. So uh, Seth, say goodbye to the good folks out there.
1: Bye everybody, have a good rest of your summer and I hope you are uh, getting excited for uh, back to school and and, uh, feel rested and ready to take on the fall semester challenges.
0: And I echo Seth's sentiments. We will be back in the, probably after for most of you have started classes again. So best of wishes to you there. Good luck. And I am Kyle A. Thomas. Thanks for listening to the Teaching Drama Podcast.